0: Get great okay well i i was asked to do the the, the sunday school especially for all souls and all saints uh, so i've entitled this all souls what are those and here's some goofy graphic that i grabbed off of google images of a soul kind of wafting its way out of a out of a body after death i 'm not sure what this is supposed to convey. Um, I want to begin with my little boy. Some of you guys will recognize. Um, he has a remarkable memory. Uh, he remembers, for instance, his great grandpa, who he met only a couple of times uh, before uh, this is Karis's Car- grandfather who passed away last summer. Um, I might brag a bit. He's also a very pious lad. Uh, He he frequently wants to pray for great grandpa. He says, "I, I pray for great grandpa. And sometimes he even wants to know, where is great grandpa? And at that point, I find myself a little bit unsure what to tell him. Any initial thoughts where great grandpa is? At any rate, that's what I want to reflect on today, so keep that question in mind. Maybe you can formulate a thought or two. Um, Here's a really old idea about folks like great-grandpa. The idea is that each of us has an immortal soul able to survive apart from our bodies. In fact, maybe that each of us is an immortal soul able to survive apart from our bodies. Here's a really weird uh, quote related about the philosopher Pythagoras. So Pythagoras supposedly passed by as a puppy was being beaten. And he says, stop, do not beat him, since it is the soul of a man, a friend of mine, which I recognized when I heard it crying. Well, that's weird. I think what's going on, though, is that Pythagoras had this idea that we are, in fact, souls that are able to sort of pass from body to body to body. The point is, we are things that are able to survive apart from this body or maybe any other body. Uh, Plato famously picks this idea up. So here's a snippet from his dialogue, uh, The Phaedo. Socrates says, Is this not called death, a freeing and separation of soul from body? And his dialogue partner, Simeus, his yes-man, says, not a doubt of that. And Socrates says, but to set it free is the chief endeavor of those who rightly love wisdom. And the very care and practice of philosophers is nothing but the freeing and separation f- uh, of soul from body. Don't you think? It appears to be so. Then, in fact, Simeus, those who rightly love wisdom are practicing dying, and death to them is the least terrible thing in the world. The context is Socrates is about to be executed here, but he's not worried about it. He's calm, he's chill, and the reason, he says, is, I've been practicing as a philosopher freeing my soul from the body, which is what I really want. So death isn't anything to be afraid of. So that's an old idea. Pythagoras has it. Plato has it. Uh, Interestingly, turning to the early church, we find something kind of different going on. Think back to Paul's address to the philosophers on the Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. So he's speaking to a whole bunch of Athenian philosophers who would have had this stuff about immortal souls in mind. And things are going very well for Paul until he starts talking about the resurrection of the body. And it says, when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered. So they were down with everything else Paul was saying until they got to this bit about the resurrection. Then they start to scoff and sneer. And we have records of early resurrection critics taking a look at this Christian doctrine and saying, nah, that can't be. Uh, Here is um, some lines attributed to the pagan philosopher Celsus, writing in the very first centuries of the Christian church. Celsus says, supposedly, it is folly on their part, i.e., our part, to suppose that those who are long since dead will arise from the earth clothed with the self-same flesh as during life. Such a hope is simply one which might be cherished by worms. What sort of human soul is that which will still long for a body that has been subject to corruption? This opinion is exceedingly vile and loathsome and impossible. For what kind of body is it which, after being completely corrupted, can return to its original nature? and to that self-same first condition, out of which it fell into dissolution. Being unable to return any answer, they, us, the Christians, betake themselves to a most absurd refuge, namely, all things are possible to God. Well, that doesn't sound all that absurd to me at any rate, um, I want to keep celsus's complaint here in mind, though, this idea that the resurrection is somehow bizarre and unmotivated and not all that attractive. Let's keep that in mind. I'll return to it in a little bit. Um, in point of fact, uh, Harry Wolfson, classical scholar, uh, relates that the ideas of immortal souls and resurrection got tied up pretty quickly in the minds of early church fathers. So Wolfson writes, To the fathers of the church, belief in the immortality of the soul and belief in the resurrection of the body were inseparably connected to each other. The belief that in the end of days there will be a general resurrection of the dead meant the reinvestment of surviving souls with risen bodies. So there's Wolfson writing in, I think I put, 1956. Interestingly, he is writing this in response to a rather famous article by another theologian, the Lutheran Oscar Kuhlmann, writing just the year before, where Kuhlmann is making precisely the opposite point. In point of fact, he wants to say, It was the resurrection of the body that was distinctively Christian, as opposed to the immortality of the soul. And Kuhlmann specifically draws as a point of contrast uh, the agony in the garden, Jesus before his death, versus the death of Socrates, right? Which we've just seen a little snippet of. Socrates is chill, right? He wants to free his soul from his body. The New Testament witness, in contrast, according to Kuhlmann at least, uh, views death as a feared enemy to be overcome rather than imprisonment from the body. And Kuhlmann uses this to contrast the Christian doctrine of resurrection versus the immortality of the soul. This is an idea that's gained in popularity, I think, in recent years among various theologians. Among them, uh, N.T. Wright, who we occasionally hear about in this church. Uh, We used to hear about more, I think, before Father Michael uh, ceased preaching to us on a regular basis. Um, Here's one thing that N.T. Wright has recently written. He says, We do not need what has been called dualism to help us over the awkward gap between bodily death and bodily resurrection. Not only must death be not proud, as John Donne declared, but those who die cannot be proud, cannot hold on to any part of themselves and say, but this is still me. All is given up. That is part of what death is. To insist that we possess an immortal part, call it soul or whatever, which cannot be touched by death, might look suspiciously like the ontological equivalent of works righteousness in its old-fashioned sense. So there's N.T. Wright talking about what has been called dualism. Um, And keeping all of this in the background, what I want to do kind of the rest of today is a sort of book report, uh, I confess, Um, on a recent work of N.T. Wright's called For All the Saints, picking up the title of the hymn that that some of us just sang. um, Wright has got a whole wood shop full of axes to grind in this book, I think. Um, But among them uh, are some that pertain directly to what we are up to as a church here called all souls, and what we will be up to together as a church as we go through uh, all Souls Day celebrations this week and through the feast of Christ the King after the kingdom season uh, in the next couple of weeks together here. Um, So here's what Wright says, kind of introducing his worry in this book. I have been increasingly aware of a mismatch between what the earliest Christians believed about life after death and what many ordinary Christians seem to believe on the subject today. Contemporary patterns of belief in my own tradition have had a considerable effect on liturgy and worship, and I've come to the conclusion that what we do and say in church at this point is increasingly at odds with anything that can be justified from the Bible or the earliest Christian traditions. This problem comes to the fore particularly with the strange things that go on in churches in October and November. I am referring to the way in which many churches have developed fresh variations on the old theme of commemorating All Souls Day, following all saints. On top of this, one recent strand of church practice has invented something called the kingdom season, consisting of the Sundays immediately before Advent. Wright says, these innovations are pulling the implicit belief of the church out of shape. Well, that hits us, you know, dead center. Um, The sorts of innovations he's talking about here are certainly innovations we've got going Uh, Together as a body, we call ourselves all souls. So again, what do we mean by that? Does Wright have a legitimate criticism leveled at us here? Um, I confess, after reading through what Wright had to say, I'm not sure that he does. But I think looking at what he has to say is at least worth doing insofar as we can, you know, kind of in our own minds, when we call ourselves all souls and celebrate all souls, Uh, keep in mind certain excesses uh, that we might otherwise be prone to. So you guys can tell me, as we go along here, uh, how you might answer the sorts of criticisms Wright has. Um, I'm not sure that I've got great answers myself. I'll be relying on you for that. Um, Wright says, There are times when a typical Anglican fudge is a pleasant, chewy sort of thing but this isn't one of them. Um, And again, some of the complaints he's got going here with this particular Anglican fudge includes Immortal Souls, All Souls Day, and this kingdom season. Um, Turns out, though, once you start reading what Wright has to say, uh, the very first thing that he starts talking about and what he levels a lot of his attention at is the kind of picture that you get out of medieval worship and practice and medieval popular piety, particularly as reflected in uh, works like Dante's Divine Comedy. The idea there is that you've got three levels of church, three churches, if you will. Uh, There's us, the church militant, the church fighting still, There is what's usually called the church expectant, or sometimes the church suffering, or the church penitent. Um, There is finally the church triumphant, the ones who have really made it. Um, The church in the middle, the church expectant, is in Dante's world the church in purgatory. The church that has sort of made it, but not quite yet and they are sort of working off the sinfulness and corruption that they accumulated with respect to their souls in this life by working their way up the mountain of purgatory. In medieval popular piety, this whole structure, three different churches, uh, is underwritten by an elaborate structure of prayer. So this is written into the prayer life of the church, Uh, We pray for the saints. We pray with the saints. Uh, In this sort of medieval church world, we pray to the saints, asking their intercessions on our behalf. Finally, we pray for the suffering, for the church that is working its way up the mountain of purgatory, hoping eventually to join the church triumphant. And Wright notes that this idea of a three-part church with part of it in purgatory was not sort of formally adopted as Roman Catholic doctrine until the Council of Leon in 1274. So it was a relatively late development in the church that this actually got codified and, and, and sat down. Um, here's, here's the... Here's the, the, the general picture. Where's great-grandpa, Gus asks. Well, the nice thing about a, a, a Dante-esque universe is that you can, you can give Gus you know, a more or less sort of answer. Um, on the left there, you'll see the mountain of purgatory, uh, various different levels corresponding to the various different vices uh, that we've seen talked about in the past couple weeks, so I think right about in the middle there uh, are the, uh, the folks who, who, who suffered in life from Acadia, which Ryan was talking about last week. So there's the slothful, and they need to be cured from their sloth before they can, they can work further upwards. Um, when they do, you'll notice here's, here's hell. Here's the mountain of purgatory on the far side of the world. That's why we don't see it, you know, because it's on the other side of the world from where we live, according to Dante. And then eventually you get the top and you start working your way up into heaven, and there's various different spheres of heaven. Uh, so the saints are hanging out in one or another of these, these different spheres. So Gus asks, where's great-grandpa? And we can say, well... Um, we hope that he's hanging out somewhere up in heaven, right, in one of these different spheres. Uh, Possibly he's hanging out on one of the tiers of Purgatory Mountain and can, you know, kind of work his way upwards. Um, At any rate, we've got something to tell Gus. You guys didn't offer anything to say on the matter yet. Um, Here's some stuff that we sometimes pray uh, I just wrote down a few that, you know, kind of came down, came to mind. Uh, we pray, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name, forever praising you and saying, "Holy, holy, holy." Um, there, it looks like we're praying with the company of heaven. We pray, may they rest in peace and rise in glory. There it looks like we're praying for the saints. For all who have died in the communion of your church, and those whose faith is known to you alone, that with all the saints they may have rest in that place where there is no pain or grief, but life eternal, we pray to you, O Lord. Right, again, praying for the deceased. Rejoicing in the fellowship of the ever-blessed Virgin Mary, blessed... Whomever we fill in, Mark, I always think, based on where I grew up, uh, and all the saints, let us commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God. Um, Here's an even more interesting one. I think this is coming from the 1928 prayer book. Uh, We also bless thy holy name for all thy servants departed this life in thy faith and fear, beseeching thee to grant them continual growth, Continual growth in thy love and service, and to give us grace, so to follow their good examples, that with them we may be partakers of thy heavenly kingdom. Grant this, O Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, our only mediator and advocate. All right. So I think that our, our theology as a church is often to be found in the prayers that we, that we pray every day together. Uh, how much of this Dante-esque picture do, do our prayers reflect? Um, I find that phrase really interesting. Grant them continual growth in thy love and service. Um, I don't know anything about the history of that particular prayer or prayer book. Um, here's what Wright has to say about it. His first axe that he's got to grind is against this idea of praying to the saints or praying for the suffering. This may be, you know, kind of common sense stuff for Anglicans, uh, possibly for all of you, Um, article 22 of the 39, um, says that the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory and also invocation of saints is a fond thing, vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. So, I mean, you read that and it's like, well, couldn't be clear, you know, we don't pray to the saints, um... We don't pray for the suffering, even if we pray for the saints. Um, Write notes that various folks have come along and tried to sort of soften what the article says here. Uh, John Henry Newman, the Oxford movement uh, mover, um, (laughs) is probably (laughs) a prime culprit here, um, Newman sat down kind of famously, he says, the first remark that occurs on perusing this article is that the doctrine objected to is the Romish doctrine. For instance, no one would suppose that the Calvinistic doctrine concerning purgatory is spoken against. Not every doctrine on these matters is a fond thing, but the Romish doctrine. Accordingly, the primitive doctrine is not condemned in it, unless indeed the primitive doctrine be Romish which must not be supposed. So Newman wants to kind of like open the door for, you know, a chastened uh, Anglican version of purgatory, or perhaps a chastened Anglican version of uh, invocation of saints. Wright, for his part, isn't having any of this. He says, that won't do. The Romish doctrine of purgatory was all there was the emphasis of the sentence lies elsewhere. It isn't that there are several versions of purgatory doctrine of which Anglicanism happens to reject the Romish one. Rather, there is one doctrine of purgatory that taught by Rome and Anglicans reject it. What Wright notes is that Eastern Orthodox Christians don't believe in purgatory. The Reformers consistently rejected it. In point of fact, the only branch of the world church that did embrace this idea, this kind of Dante-esque picture, was the Roman Catholic Church. And Wright wants to say that's exactly what uh, the, 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 the Article 22 is taking aim at. Um, he has similar things to say about the notion of praying to the saints, right? Asking them for prayers on our behalf. He says, I do not find in the New Testament or in the church fathers, any suggestion that those at present in heaven are actively engaged in praying for those of us in the present life, nor do I find any suggestion that Christians who are still alive should pray to the saints to intercede to the Father on their behalf. So he wants to rule both of these practices out. Um, Is right, right, to do so here. Um... I think it is worth noting uh, there's kind of a strand of church theology that has said, "Eh, there's actually a theological justification behind purgatory. Um, Surely we need to be cleaned up a little bit before entering into glory. C.S. Lewis even embraces this kind of picture, writing in uh, his book Letters to Malcolm, our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, uh, but we are charitable here and no one will upbraid you with these things nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply with submission, sir? And if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir... I admit there's something kind of compelling about that line. C.S. Lewis is usually pretty compelling, I find. Um, Doesn't compel N.T. Wright, though. Uh, Wright says, nonsense. We have been fooled again by a view of death on which the really important thing is the soul. We have allowed our view of the saving of souls to loom so large that we've failed to realize the Bible is much more concerned about bodies, concerned to the point where it's actually quite difficult to give a clear biblical account of the disembodied state in between death and bodily resurrection. What should not be in doubt is that for the New Testament, bodily death itself put an end to sin. All right, so there's kind of the first part of what Wright is up to. He's wanting to challenge this idea but there are three tiers of church. His idea is we should only recognize two of them, the church triumphant and the church militant, hence kind of cutting down the economy of prayer that the church for, for a long, long time, coming out of the Middle Ages, has, has recognized. Any thoughts or questions or ideas there before we move on? Yeah.
1: <laughs> long, long, long until birth of 18, right? If we're comparing Anglican geniuses, I'm going to go with Lewis. He respatializes the word, in the Great Divorce, and makes it more accessible for us. But also, you have this so many hundreds of years of church tradition with this understanding. Does he mention the Great Divorce at all?
0: Right in this yeah. book? No, I don't I mean, think so. Yeah, um, Mary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly something that he's wanting to downplay. Um, does he talk about
1: Paul, about those passages at all?
0: Paul? He does. He, he, he mentions he mentioned stuff like this. Um, I think what he would want to say is, you know, even Paul, when he's talking about being out of the body, is consistently, like, befuddled about what's going on, right? He talks about being caught up into the third heaven, and he's like, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. I don't know what was going on there. So Wright wants to say, look, we shouldn't read any kind of, like, robust, you know, anthropology into those passages. But whether he's right about that, um, right?
1: Well, I think two things is is that uh, I'm not sure where, I don't, I mean, I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure what Wright is saying about the soul after death. Yeah, <laughs> the thinker, the Christian thinker of the 20th century, but I would not say as right. Since we have been fooled again by the view of death, I would say we have been fooled by not understanding the work of Christ on the cross to cleanse cleanses from our sins. Yeah. And the new birth that we are new creatures. Yeah. That's the issue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think I think that I think that's what he's wanting to emphasize okay. is that so you know our. Right. Yeah, we we will actually come back to that idea I think a little bit later on here. Uh Dan Um, I don't know about that passage specifically. Um, I I think something that he, well, that I'll I'll relate him saying a little bit later on here may speak to that. His idea is, you know, it's perfectly okay to speak in uh, a kind of loose and popular sense about our being, you know, in God's presence. God keeps an eye on us after all. He just doesn't want us to read any kind of like robust ontology where you've got like, this physical part and this non-physical part and and, and so forth uh, into passages like that. He doesn't reckon that, you know, Paul or anybody else was was sort of doing metaphysics when they were setting this stuff down. Um, Let me move on here to uh, his line on All Souls Day in particular. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting. The point he's making, even if it doesn't, you know, make us change our ways as a church, um, here's kind of a gloomy All Souls Day picture that I found somewhere. Uh, Matt William Adolf Bergeroux. Bergerou. Bergerou. Yeah. All right. Familiar. I don't. Uh, <laughs> here, here's what he's got to say. Um, looks like it's kind of mid nineteenth century French. Late nineteenth. So why do we have all saints and then all souls? Wright says this double day splits off ordinary Christians from these so-called great ones, the saints, in a way that the latter would have been the first to repudiate. By having two days like this back-to-back, we not only add an unwarranted and unbiblical teaching to our repertoire, We change the wonderful, biblical, and glorious All Saints' Day into a distant admiration of people who are not like us, not like those who were martyred yesterday in the Sudan. In fact, the commemoration of all souls, especially the way it is now done, denies to ordinary Christians, and we're all ordinary Christians, the solid, magnificent hope of the gospel that all baptized believers... All those indwelt by the Spirit are already saints. Where did all that all-souls gloom come from? So you'll, you'll, you'll notice Father Martin, if you haven't been in the service yet, wearing this really lovely uh, black and gold uh, vestment today. Uh, but it's kind of somber, I want to say. It
1: the only we get
0: to wear it. Well, okay, but... So what's up? I mean, is is Wright just being grumpy here, or does he have a legitimate point to make? I'm really curious what you guys make of this. Um. Well, I guess one simple point
1: that you can make is
0: that you can imagine doing the service in that way, but you don't have to do it that way. I mean, okay. So maybe just like invite him for a visit. Okay. <laughs> show show him that we aren't in fact all that gloomy after all um yeah I would argue that it's the least charitable of the other stand I respect his right yeah I do detect a fair bit of grumpiness in this book where, where you know he's been kind of put off by certain things he's observed going on in church and wants to, to grouse about them a bit. Um Rich? I'm thinking of, of
1: two things. Number one, I'm trying to figure
0: out where your grandfather is. Where what? <laughs> ah yeah, right. And
1: where anti righteous
0: is. Yeah. Right, so that is. Yeah, and you can't even go up to the
1: altar. Yeah, you yeah. Just forget who you are. So there is something. Sure. That, that there's a reason to be grumpy. In that sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're not so familiar with it any longer. And so it,
1: it, it seems But he's got, he's got a fight that he's really concerned about. Yeah.
0: And, and I mean, you're. you're Yeah. You're right that he's kind of set it up in that context in his book. Um, he seems to think that our present celebrations of uh, All Souls Day and so forth kind of invite a return to that idea. Um, I don't know whether we think that's the case. Maybe something to be on guard against at any rate. Um, Here's what he's got to say about kingdom season and Christ the King. Again, uh, Joy, you may find him kind of at his, at his least charitable here. I don't know. Maybe he's got a point to make. He says, this implies, kingdom season, Christ the King, that only some of the Christian dead, the saints in a restrictive sense, have made it there. It, ha- it appears to leave no room for a final resurrection or the coming renewal of heaven and earth. It leaves God in charge of a kingdom, which is only heaven, not, as Jesus taught us to pray and claimed in his continuing commission, on earth. In particular, this kingdom season drastically weakens Advent. Part of the significance of Advent is that it's the point at which the years overlap. The preparation for the coming of Jesus at Christmas overlaps with the preparation for his coming in glory kingdom season unscrambles the eschatological teaching of the old church year in which the coming kingdom on earth as in heaven was foreshadowed in the coming of the incarnate son. In its place, it has put a very different eschatology. The saints have gone before us into a kingdom called heaven where we may hope to eventually join them. This is precisely what the New Testament does not teach he says. Um, Father Martin? I I mean, I'm resisting, but... Why?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think he's right about the way those symbols are interpreted, but there's no necessity in structurally ending the season with a bit of a bang in... in, I mean, (laughs) questioning is hardly an unbiblical concept, and we're doing our best to interpret in this inaugurated eschatological model, right? has given us... Yeah.
0: He acknowledges that. He just wants to. Sorry. I uh, I mean, that's all back behind the scenes. Right, right. Uh, Mary. Yeah. this is what I was very much hoping is that if I threw out some provocative statements, I could get other people to do my teaching for me here. This is this is, this is is good stuff. Um, I do want to kind of come around here to, I've, I've issued some promissory notes about the souls and about great-grandpa in particular. Um, so, so I do want to come around to them at the end here. Um, here's N.T. Wright again. Um, this is Kind of right at the end of the book, he says, sharp-eyed readers will have noticed that I have managed almost entirely to avoid the word soul, which many will have expected to play a prominent role in a book like this. If we use the word, many readers will get the impression that I believe every human being comes already equipped with an immortal soul. I don't believe that. Immortality is a gift of God in Christ, not an innate human capacity. Often the word soul is used loosely by Christians to refer the, to the fact that I find myself addressed by and loved by God in ways which cannot be tabulated in terms of space, time, and matter. Dan, I think this might sort of address what uh, what what he would say about you know, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, um, not of the dead, but of the living. This usage in which soul is a way of talking about Me being in the presence of God does not imply that there is a particular thing called the soul or that we agree with particular theories, Plato's for instance, about such an entity. So here's your soul wafting out of its body again. Um, Remember what Celsus had to say about our notion of the resurrection. Um, What is Celsus worried about One complaint he's got going is that the Christian teaching concerning the bodily resurrection is bizarre. It is unmotivated. It is unattractive. This is something that philosophers who believed in the notion of immortal souls started lobbying against early Christians pretty early on. They thought this Christian notion of the resurrection kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, And they were not pleased by it. I think that complaint is at least one worth addressing. And I think an account that fails in any obvious way to address it is one that says, we die, we go to heaven, and we're there for a while praising God or whatever we happen to be doing. Then God sticks us back into bodies at the day of resurrection. I think that's like a pretty popular picture maybe it's even the right picture but stated just like that it doesn't say anything at all about why it is that it should be so important that God sticks us back into bodies at the resurrection I mean why is that part of our doctrine to begin with we're there hanging out with God praising him enjoying the beatific vision if you like Uh, we're doing just fine, right? Why should we be so upset about this whole death thing? Why not say with Socrates in the Phaedo, ah, I've arrived, I've escaped from my body. Here's an account that I think succeeds in addressing it. Um, You knew Thomas Aquinas was going to make an appearance at the end here. Um, In Aquinas' commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is, of course, talking about the resurrection. Uh, He notes in particular Paul's claim that if there is no resurrection, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why is that? Why are we especially pitiable if there's no resurrection? Well, he mentions that the Christian life requires suffering, and then he says if we've suffered more than other people, that's why we're more pitiable if there's no resurrection. But then he considers an objection to this. An objector might step in and say, yeah, 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 you know, we suffer in life, but that's storing up for us a weight of glory beyond all measure, and we will get, you know, riches and crowns and, you know, whatever other stuff is promised to us after we die as souls. Aquinas' response to this is to say, here's what Paul is getting at. We die... And we are really dead. We cease to exist, strictly speaking. Our souls may be in heaven, according to Aquinas, but Aquinas insists that my soul is not me. Whatever my soul may be, it is not me, the person, the human being. We, in fact, are bodies, according to Aquinas. We are living bodies. We are spiritual bodies. We are bodies created in the image of God, certainly. But we are bodies nevertheless. At the resurrection, God re-embodies our souls, and the resulting soul-body composites are us back from the dead. The point, though, is we need to be resurrected in order for us to have any hope of everlasting life because our souls are not us. I don't know if you think that idea does a better job than the other account I sketched, sort of explaining why it is that people would have been so worried about the resurrection in the early church in the first place. Um, I need to wrap up. What can we learn from all of this? Um, A few different things, I think. Regarding all souls and saints, if we've ever drawn a firm line between Souls and saints, kind of cordoning them off from us, Wright reckons perhaps we shouldn't do that. As regards kingdom season, we should keep in mind what Christ is the king of, not an otherworldly kingdom, but this kingdom, us. As far as the souls of the departed go, um, Here's a more tentative suggestion I was just throwing out there. Strictly speaking, great-grandpa isn't anywhere. He's dead. Sorry, Gus. I didn't tell Gus this, by the way. Um, His soul is, however, awaiting the resurrection. And, of course, more loosely, we can think of ourselves as souls. We talk this way. We say, you know, he's a jolly old soul. Um, In this sense, we can think of our departed as a sleep in the Lord, awaiting resurrection in this kind of loose sense. But I think we should be careful here. We should remain guided by biblical language and not sort of import in theories like Plato's or Pythagoras's or or whomever's about what exactly is going on there. Um, Here's a last suggestion, and I'll I'll, I'll end with this, um, regarding prayers for and with the departed wanted to end on a positive note this line of nt writes i i I think i actually like Um, he says there are many other reasons for praying than anxiety about somebody's particular state true prayer is an outflowing of love if i love someone i will want to pray for them not necessarily because they're in difficulties but simply because holding them up in god's presence is the most natural and appropriate thing to do and because I believe that God chooses to work through our prayers for other people's benefit. Now, love doesn't stop at death. So there's no reason at all why love should discontinue the practice of holding the beloved in prayer before God. Um, so, out of the mouths of babes, I want to suggest that maybe Gus had, had it right when he insisted on praying for great-grandpa, even if we remain somewhat fuzzy about where exactly great-grandpa is, what his status is, and so forth. I think we can tell Gus, pray for great-grandpa. Remember him before God, even if we remain somewhat non, non, non-committal about what sort of state great-grandpa is in. Um, i better quit with that, right? Okay, thank you guys. Thank you for your thoughts.